the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to Intersection Education. As usual, I'm your host, Corey Haley, and today we have a special treat. We've got a roundtable with two of the smartest people I know, and that is uh, one Bryn Spence, principal of High Park School in Stony Plain, Alberta, as well as Dr. Randing Hetherington, who is the associate professor at the University of Portland, uh, faculty of education. I'm actually going to stop right now and just make sure that I did not uh, butcher that. It is the Faculty of Education, Randy, or is it, uh, do they have a different name? Is it School of Education? Did I get that one right? Well, you did pretty good, Corey. It's Assistant Professor in the School of Education. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was close, but uh, that's all right. And today. I just had my mid tenure review, so, you know, I'm up for Associate Professor soon, so you'll be right, hopefully, soon. <laughs> uh, I, I hope to be right in, in, a, in a very short amount of time. Um, as I said today, uh, a different format. Um, every so often, people like to hear about what different people are hearing, what, are, what, is, what do issues look like practically, and essentially what's on our mind. I think that, um, as I said today, um, we've got some of the people that are in the field that are maybe in the field in different ways, and they're thinking deeply about issues related to education, leadership, and teaching. And uh, I like to think that if it's on our mind, it might be on yours. And we'll get three different perspectives on some different topics and get some different ways of thinking about issues that might be affecting your school uh, or your teaching or your class. And I thought we'd start with Bryn. Uh, Bryn, what's on your mind right now? What, uh, what are some of the uh, issues or what is the maybe perhaps uh, pick an issue that you're, type, you're facing right now? And uh, uh, maybe talk about some of the things that you're thinking about that particular issue. Okay. Um, so, I mean, given where we are in the year, so given that, you know, we're just at the tail end of February here, um, I'm always reminded of a, of a conversation we had in our first three first year together um, where you and I were, Corey, you and I were sitting at the table and Randy came in and he said, okay, so let's start planning for next year. And you kind of, you and I kind of looked at each other like, Oh, Hey, this is, we still got quite a bit of this year left to do. And you know, why are we starting to talk about next year? And I think that's something that's been really big on my mind right now is just looking forward to next year and thinking about, okay, there's all these things that there's lots of nice to do's, there's lots of we should do's, but there's only so much money. And so I've been really trying to balance that whole um, where where do we put the money to have the biggest impact, realizing that, you know, resources are always scarce and uh, there's never enough to go and do everything you want to do. How do you how do you use that the available resources to say, OK, what should we do to support and meet the best needs of kids as a, as a whole? 
So uh, I forgot to mention, and I perhaps should have, is that there was a time and a place when all three of us worked at the same school. Um, and, and so that's good uh, feedback. But I want you to have the first hack on that question because I think it's something that every single administrator faces at around this time of year. So if you were to answer your own question here, Bryn, given the limited resources, given you want to maximize your impact, what are the type of things that go through your head when you're thinking about where do I put my money? Um, so, I mean, a, a big piece of that is always people before things, right? And that was kind of always our, our motto. And I can see you both smiling there. Um, you know, that was always the, that was always kind of the dipstick that we used to test as we, as we went forward. Um, and I think that's, that still holds true for me. Um, we have been talking a lot about how to find the balance between, um, supporting, things like social emotional well-being of kids and, and that uh, and that uh, the kind of their taking care of their heart and then also taking care of their head and so I think uh, at High Park we have done a, a really good job of taking care of their hearts and we have a lot of programs in place and we have been talking a lot recently about okay so what things do we need to kind of amplify and and um, bring attention to in terms of taking care of their head so that all, there's always that kind of balance to be struck and i think it's really easy to to fall one way or the other uh, but finding that sweet spot is always kind of a kind of a moving target based on um you know based on individual student need based on the needs of the school as a whole and then also based on staff expertise is the other piece that has to play into into uh consideration right absolutely um dr hetherington you've been you've been at this for a couple more budget cycles than either of us. Um, <laughs> any thoughts when, when it comes up to, you know, maximizing your impact and, and putting your money where you think you're, you're going to have the, the best impact on students and the best impact on learning. And then this whole balance between, oh, I love how you put that Bryn uh, head and the heart. Well, it's almost like uh, Bryn, you know, is aware of the mission statement here at, uh, at the university of Portland, because the head, the heart and the hands is what, is, is all about here. And if, if it's all right, I, I'm going to kind of take Bryn's uh, original concept and, and I won't say blow it up, but I want to go, go big before we go small, because I think if you're going to start making decisions about something uh, as important to your school community as that, that budget and, and what it can and can't do, you really need to be coming from a position of needs as opposed to wants. There's lots of things we want in our schools. There's lots of things that we know, would make this a little better and that a little better and, and improve things here and there. But I, I think first and foremost, if, if we kind of reconnect um, to the mission of the school division and, and to where our school sits within that mission and within that vision and what do we need right now? What is What are the stress points? What are the ways we can um, best support our teachers, who are the people who most closely support our kids. So, you know, from the principal's chair, I, I think that needs, wants uh, thing is huge uh, because it allows you to think of those macro items uh, before you go to the micro ones. Because as I know you have both experienced in many of your situations, money can be chewed up real quick um, with some of the decisions that we have to make. And Bryn mentioned people before things. And I, I know that got a smile from all of us because, you know, your biggest investment, uh, the one you should spend the most time on by far is your people. And if you spend the time there, 
uh, they'll make sure that some of those other things happen, uh, whether you have the resources or sometimes even when you don't. Uh, so I think from my vantage point, uh, before I would ever, you know, decide, well, we got to sing a bit more over towards technology or we got to take a look what we're doing in our, in our special needs area, I would want to, I don't know, do a, some kind of a litmus test or a dipstick test of, of where the staff is at and what the perceived needs of the building are. And uh, you'll probably recall a time where we actually did that. Uh, as a threesome, we spent a great deal of time with a very large staff um, determining what they felt the needs were and went from there. You know, one of the things that I'm thinking about is coming back to what you started with, Randy, and that was um, what is your mission? What's your vision? And and thinking about that and wondering if, you know, does does the the community, does the staff have a particular issue? And then the second question that I would have is measuring that climate. And it sounds like you did that. I mean, uh, people are telling you that you need to start looking at, um, it sounds like you're saying head, and I'm interpreting that as more academic focus, um, you know, and then I'm thinking of the heart, more social, emotional, psychological needs. Okay, awesome. So they are, you're getting that feedback, you are um, hearing that, and then what do you do and how do you go about that? And then... Asking them, I mean, this, this, it, it's the balance you talk about head and heart balance. Man, don't we live in a world where there are so many balances? The other balance that I think comes into play is where does the leader and where does the voice of the, of the staff, where is that interplay? And there's different times when one takes a lead and one takes a, um, a back seat. And so that's, that's, I, I'm more inclined to believe that the, answer is in the room and your staff knows knows what it is and it sounds like you're listening to that already any any other things you have to kind of after hearing that Bryn would anything that kind of twigged your your thought process um I don't think so I think that that's that's pretty much the way that we operate for the most part um uh, I guess reflecting on it trying to find those opportunities for everybody to have voice is huge right and i think that Mm -hmm. if everybody has voice then that builds uh staff uh commitment to things and um they see some some control over their direction which i think helps a lot the other thing that i have really been thinking about that i didn't mention but after you said that and you kind of said voice was where does the student voice come in and i realized that in a k-9 school some of those young kids you know, there we have to temper that and we have to be really mindful of that. But one thing I have been impressed by recently is the ability for seven through nine students, when given some coaching, to actually really drill down into some root causes or some some really great insights into what might improve their education. This was more particularly in health and physical activity. We were talking to some students that we were really struggling with this, and we just asked them. And I was I was blown away. I, I just didn't think that seven through nine students um, could have the type of insight and come up with the solutions. But um, yeah, that was a, another thing that you might want to consider. That's a really good idea too, Doctor Hatherington. What's uh, 
Uh, do you have any follow up, or, or maybe maybe you well, want to think? Well, about- I mean, I, I guess you, you did a lead in in addressing uh, part of Bryn's issue, Corey. You brought up one that is um, a, a really a big issue in schools, certainly south of the 49th parallel, uh, where I find myself currently working with uh, in-service teachers, pre-service teachers, and uh, administrators in the schools, and they're really, in some ways, struggling to address culturally relevant pedagogy. They're, they're looking at ways to address a very diverse uh, student body, sometimes a very diverse staff body, which I know uh, from our time back in Alberta isn't necessarily the reality, but I know that up in Alberta, you're working uh, a great deal these days uh, implementing uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission guidelines and the recommendations that have come out recently in the new uh, teaching quality standard, leadership quality standard, and now the superintendent uh, leadership quality standard. So I know that that is a, a part of that uh, back home in Alberta. So that whole thing of culturally relevant pedagogy, what causes people concern down here and where I think the frustration is, and maybe you uh, gentlemen have some ideas on this, is how do you help your staff understand someone else's culture, a culture that they are not a part of, that they are not a member of, without insulting, without um, uh, causing issues that you didn't know were there. They're just very nervous about entering into that whole playing field uh, and how to, as leaders in their buildings, as school administrators, how do they help their teachers with this? And as teachers, how do they address it with their students? Mm -hmm. Uh, These are big questions for the people that are looking to become teachers and big questions for those who already are and are already administrators in schools. So maybe if I could toss that uh, to you two uh, scholarly individuals, what do you think? You're, you're both in schools. I'll maybe take a first hack at that. And I would kind of divide the question or my answer, um, the answer to my, to your question into two answers. And the first one I think is related to perspective. Uh, and that is, how do we understand um, what I will generally say as another perspective, but might be related to our privilege, because usually, not always, our, our teachers are probably coming from a privileged, privileged position. Um, and I would say that we are tasked with a fairly difficult thing, which is trying to teach or get others to see a different perspective. And, and I will um, quote uh, two people that I th- have been very influential on my learning around this, and that's the first is Dwayne Donald. And that's his quote or his saying on this was, we need to stop learning about other people, and we need to start learning with other people. And that really affected me. That was, we have to stop. So here, our focus on, is on Indigenous people, uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. And, and he asked me how many times our students had interacted or, or learned with um, the school that was about 10 kilometers down the road um, at the Enoch Cree Nation. And I had to tell him that no student, to my knowledge, from the Enoch Cree Nation had ever been to our school, even though there was only 10 kilometers that separated us. We had never done anything together. And so he started 
that kind of got me thinking about, okay, if we really want to integrate Indigenous perspectives, perhaps we have to stop learning about them and learning with them. And so we're thinking about, and, and this is where it kind of comes in, um, some, some, some shared experiences, maybe some, some shared field trips or, or somewhere where we meet um, in our community um, to, to go. So the first thing I would say is perspective. So let's learn with others. So where possible, let's, let's get our teachers speaking with um, other people who, who have or hold that perspective. But the other thing that I would say is, um, is it is difficult because we realize that we'll never actually have the authority and the perspective to speak on behalf of them. And so I find that, Randy, extremely difficult as well. So we can do as much learning as we'd like around Indigenous perspectives, but it'll never actually replace getting someone who is from that different perspective to come in. And that's why, uh, and the person that put me on that to that was uh, a principal here in Alberta at Gainai High School, Ramona Bighead. And she said, you know, just, just reach out. There are enough elders, there are enough videos, there are enough resources where you can get someone who's not you speaking about these issues from an authentic perspective. Um, and, and I think that that reduces the fear because teachers often don't want to misspeak. They don't want to misrepresent. And so if you can get these people in, or even if you can get a video, or even if you visit, visit a museum, she, she offered the um, a different, different museums that are available um, here that do a really great job of presenting the Indigenous perspectives. And so that's what I think about when I think about that. And I realize that in the United States, um, the perspectives are perhaps, or, or, or the cultures are perhaps different than here in Canada. Bryn, things that you guys are working on in High Park, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a couple of things you said there that, uh, that really kind of resonated with me. Um, Randy, the thing I was thinking about when you kind of first threw that out there is uh, – something that jumped into my head was the work that we did around uh, creating a GSA in, in our school. And I think that while not necessarily a cultural or it's not necessarily in that cultural window, it, I think it is definitely something that can be um, misunderstood and has a, a pretty. Um, Do you want to pretty, uh, explain what a GSA is for people who might not be familiar with that uh, acronym, Bryn? Yeah, for sure. So we had a, uh, a couple of students who came to me uh, three years or so ago now is, and, and said they would like to create a, uh, a GSA, which is a Gay-Straight Alliance. Um, and so we just call it the Alliance in our school. Um, and there's, you know, there's seven, eight, ten, twelve uh, kids that um, come together and, and just talk and create really an inclusive um, culture within, within their group. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I think Corey, what you said about, you know, you can't, it's not something you can fake it till you make it. So it is something that we have to, um, take advantage of those, those groups and those people around us. And I think that can help a lot in, in creating some authenticity with things. Um, 
we took the kids to the, the GSA conference in Calgary and it was really amazing. Um, at one point, one of the students kind of leaned forward and just whispered, uh, you know, oh, there are other people like me out here. And it was, it was just really cool to see. And I think that that's a, a piece of it. Um, when we introduced it, I was a little bit uh, concerned about the community's reaction to it. And I was, I think it's an example of one of the times that I had an idea in where, what thing, what was going to come to fruition based on kind of um, maybe some fears, maybe some things like that, but I was completely wrong. And it was really neat to see the, how, how groups came together and, and really um, accepted and, and bonded. And, and I would say it's a really important part of our school now that, um, is, is well embedded in the culture of the school. And I think that that's a big piece of it is that sometimes it's not, um, you know, to, to, to quote, uh, one of our, our former associate superintendents, it's that idea of going slow to go fast. Right. And I, I remember that, that conversation really, uh, vividly the first time I heard that because I was like, oh yeah, okay. So sometimes it's about just kind of starting and starting small and then building on the successes so that you can build some some momentum moving forward. And I think, um, Randy, to kind of talk through where you started us, that idea of where do we start? We start by making a, a visible shift, but it might just be a small shift that starts to get people thinking differently. And I think that's that whole idea, Corey, of, of learning together is if we can learn together and we can, we can be authentic and say, Hey, you know what? I don't know either. Let's figure it out. Let's move forward together. Let's uncover this answer. Let's, um, let's do it together. I think that's a huge piece of how we start to do this. And I, I think that that is a universal, but I think especially in places where we don't have uh, authentic understanding of what it is, that's so important. Yeah, and, and Bryn, something that you both, you and Corey said, kind of struck a chord for me as well, because you referred to authentic voice and having, where do you get that authentic voice and bringing that authentic voice in? And Corey talked about that. Uh, and then you also mentioned, Bryn, how do you have the authority? Uh, how to to speak and, and to engage in those those issues. And I remember Corey had a guest on his podcast, and her name is escaping me right now, but I know Louisiana uh, was home. Uh, Corey, maybe help me with the name. Uh, I've had two from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. My good friend, Dr. Valen Jordan, who... Um, is uh, all about the culturally responsive pedagogy and social justice. You could also have Dr. Natalie Kiefer, who is uh, about social justice as well as global citizenship. Well, and if I recall, because I'm just that kind of person, when I listened to your podcast, I looked up both of those ladies and found out that they've even done some projects together, which was not surprising to me. And I believe it was Valen. I, I, want, I stand to be correct, but I believe it was Valen Jordan who recommended the book by Gloria Ladson-Billings, The Dream Keepers, as one of the, the key texts. And I have to say that I went out and purchased The Dream Keepers right after uh, she mentioned it, and because uh, I'm quite familiar with Gloria Latson Billings' work in, in other areas on um, 
uh, critical race theory and how that's applied to some of the research we're doing here at the university. And, you know, in as part of reading that book is I'm trying to understand myself. And I think maybe where the struggle is in our schools, from what I heard Bringer say, is the adults have the fear. The adults have the fear of the misstep or of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. But what I'm hearing from both of you is the kids have got this. Uh, you know, they're not struggling with those relationships and the and, and having a, a more diverse perspective. It's the adults that are having more of the struggle. And maybe that's why uh, my young and beginning teachers that I work with here and the experienced administrators who, like yourselves, are wondering, how's the community going to take this? How's the community going to react? And maybe that's more the issue than is how do we deal with not with student fears around this, but with the adult fears, with taking that first step. And I, I can almost hear Simon Breakspear whispering in my ear, just, you know, take the first step and see where it goes. And, and, and uh, you can adjust along the way. So. And yeah, I, I think that's a, such a good point, Randy, is taking that first step. And, and so what we did, one of the things that we did is make it a nonverbal step, make it a step that is, is more symbolic in nature. And so we had these little um, safe space stickers printed up and just said, hey, if you would like one for your door, grab one. There, no pressure. If you want one, great. If you don't want one, that's fine too. It was, it was really amazing to me to see how they just appeared on everybody's door and how people, when they were given the opportunity to do something, um, embraced that and, and jumped on that. And I think it's something that that was a, a really good piece of learning for me is that sometimes it's not about bringing in a big flashy speaker. It's just about that symbolic thing to, to move things forward. And then as, as, uh, as it embeds and as it, as people build confidence with it, then you can start to move uh, a little bit faster. Um, you know, here's something that's been on my mind a little bit lately and you know what? I, I went for a run today, and uh, it's winter here in Alberta. And before I, I, I left for that run, um, you know, I pulled up the, the weather app and kind of looked at the temperature and looked at how, how the wind was going to be and how that might shift. And, and I did that before I, you know, put on clothes or decided whether I went out or decided how long or how hard I was going to go – for a run today and I thought about how that is the same thing happens in a school and I think about you know you got to read your climate before you make your choices and I've been thinking about how to get that read because it would be very convenient for an app to kind of show up on your phone Kind of pull it up saying, you know what, your staff, it's it's ready to do a major shift. It's ready to accept this big initiative. Or the app might say, you know, your staff is kind of overloaded right now and um, they're not quite ready. So the back end of that is, okay, well, how do we go about making sure that we're getting authentic voices? And there's two different things that kind of are in my head originally on this. The first is that, that there's this... There's a camaraderie, but a restraint. And what I mean by that is oftentimes in leadership, we, we talk and we have authentic relationships. But sometimes, you know, you, you don't go out for the beer and you don't go out to all these kind of 
different things where there might be these back channels of of conversation happening where that's going to give you more information. And then the, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I think about is um, is something Todd Whitaker said, who is just recently at our uh, at our teachers convention here in the uh, North Central District of Alberta. And and that's that you know you know you don't make your your decisions based on or sorry I'll I'll put this in the affirmative and that is that you you make your decisions based on your best teachers and so if you're having those couple conversations and maybe you got it I'd be interested in to know what you guys are thinking about that and and what comes to mind when you when you think about measuring that climate of a school in relationship to the initiatives that you want to start or the changes you want to make. Go ahead, Bryn. You take the first crack. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think that – what do I think? I think um, a, a big piece of what you do is by having those conversations and, um, you know, that whole idea of uh, – sounds cliche, right? But the open-door policy and come in, sit down, pull up a chair, tell me if you think that I'm way off. Tell me if you think that we're on the right track. But let's have a conversation. So I think that's that's the first and, and kind of the most important thing is, you know, you have a question, you have a comment, come in, let's talk about it, let's figure it out. Even if we don't agree, we can still find a way to move forward. So I think that's a, a big piece of it. Now, do you seek that one out or do you just create the climate where people come to you? Both and. Okay. Right? So I think that I, I would I would hazard a guess that my staff know that if they have something to say – they can walk through the door and we can have a conversation if they want to. Right. Um, I think that's part of it. I think also walking through other people's doors to have that conversation is equally important where, you know, you're out and about and somebody's on a prep and you walk in and say, Hey, what do you think about? Right. Or how did that go? Or, or, and talking through those sorts of things. So seeking those out as well. So I think, I think that's part of it. Um, I think also, so if I reflect on, on our time together, the three of us, and, and certainly my time uh, currently working with, uh, with the, the assistant principal that I am currently working with now, I think we do a really good job of maintaining kind of those really important column sounding board relationship sort of things um, outside of maybe the pair of us or the three of us. And so if I think about... Um, when the three of us were together, if we were talking about something, there would be those times where I'd talk to somebody else on staff to say, hey, just in a general sense, what do you think about this? Gather that information back. And then when the three of us are sitting down, it's coming through there as well, right? And so also trusting your admin team to um, utilize those relationships to build a really good understanding about things moving forward, uh, I think is also important. And then Finally, the the whole before you jump into a pool, talk to everybody to make sure it's a good thing to do, right? Um, and I think that 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 whole idea of teacher voice, like we talked about at the start, plays into it as well. And finding ways for them to give that feedback. Sometimes, you know what? If if you're not comfortable coming down and and sitting down and saying, "Hey, that's a stupid idea," um, fair enough. But let's give let's give people different ways to do that. And so, finding those vehicles and those methods for gathering that information to say, you know, what are you thinking about this? Is this the right direction? Are we going the right way? Um, and sometimes it's as simple as that, and and just leaving those open ended questions. Well, it's funny that. Uh 
that you went down that road, uh, Brendan, and certainly I, I remember some of the, our conversations uh, we've recollected as a, as a team before. So a cautionary tale, if I could throw one out in, in this one, is we always have to be aware that we see things through our own lens. I mean, I like to surround myself with people who think differently than I do because, I mean, I agree with myself all the time. I, I need to find people who are going to let me know when I'm in left field, and I had two gentlemen who did that uh, when we worked together as a team, and we have to be able to suspend judgment and suspend all of those interpersonal things to just be considering the culture, considering the issue, because we each bring our own lens. We see our schools. We see our staff. We see our students through our own experiences, through where we've come from. Uh, and the people we've learned from, and all of those things that have influenced us going through. And just as I learned from the two of you gentlemen, uh, and having the, the honor of working with the two of you, I mean, now I see special needs education through a different lens from what I've learned from Bryn. And I certainly learned a ton about how you initiate literacy programming from the experience, Corey, that you had in initiating a literacy program at our school, and not only the successes but the minefields and the barriers and all of those things. And it made me very, very aware that I see things with a particular lens and it's important if we're going to decide where we go and if we're going to measure the climate. Well, first and foremost, there's no app and there's no thermometer in the principal's office. Uh, and you, you got to get out of that office and in a sense, uh, any good administrator, vice principal, assistant principal, principal, you should have an idea of the climate of your school because you should be out in your school and you should be out there to have a good feeling of when it's time to do a, a temperature check. And, and as you say, um, you know, make sure before you jump in the pool that it's a pool worth jumping into and you should have some kind of an idea. And one thing I will share, it's very practical. Don't know if, if this will be something that folks want to try using, but seeing how Corey started this all with Todd Whitaker, uh, a gentleman who I've had the privilege of listening to many, many times, I utilized a book that he wrote with Jeff Soule, uh, Culture Rewired. And it is a book all about school climate, school culture. And in that book, they even actually have an instrument that they designed for uh, staff to simply do and reflect on who they are, where they are, and you could have community members. You could decide who needs to be in on that. Uh, and if you can create enough of trust that you as the principal haven't got a predetermined conclusion, that there's not a right answer that needs to be given here, then you can gather some really good input uh, to kind of get a good idea. And you may, you may just be really surprised at what you get back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think those are really great tips. I had forgotten about uh, the Todd Whitaker uh, tool. That's a, that's a good one. I also think it's good advice, Randy, what you were saying about, um, you know, we agree with ourselves. So let's get out of our office. And it makes me think of our previous conversation about building relationships. And that's the groundwork you do every single day. That's the groundwork that we work on over time, cumulatively, so that it's when it's time to make that, you, you already have either A, uh, a general sense, which is the temperature gauge or the app, but you know, and then um, you can kind of act accordingly. And I think, Bryn, what, 
what I was, what I appreciate about what you were saying was that open door policy and perhaps some of the processes that one puts in place. And, and that's kind of the judgment call about, you know, which decisions are the ones that we're going to go to a body of the whole and we're going to put out and we're just going to freely accept what comes from that. And which ones are we going to put, you know, slight barriers around or perhaps some, 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 not blinders, but we're going to steer them. And which ones are we not even going to go to the whole? Which ones are we just going to come right back and we're going to say, hey, you know, you, you don't have the perspective, you don't hear what's going on, or, you know, the uh, someone above me has said this is going to happen, so this is how it's going to happen. So, uh, no, I appreciate about about the relationship aspect and, and the structures that you put in place and that ongoing kind of nature of knowing when it's time and, and, and where the staff are at. Yeah. Yeah, Corey, that what you just described, and I'll very quickly, what you just described is the decision-making continuum. And, uh, you know, you can go back to Hoy and Tartar where all of that kind of stuff originally came from in the research, but it's from authoritarian to participative. And there's no spot on the continuum that's any worse or bad or good. There's no judgment there. It's just where is the best place on that continuum to make each decision? And you just very eloquently laid that out. You need to decide where does this decision need to be made? Yeah. And I think that, so when I think about you know, a, a very clear lesson that, that we took away from you, Randy. There were, there's two of them that really resonate with me with or jump to, to the front of mind with this. Uh, one is, you know, don't ask a question that you've already decided the answer to, right? And so I think that's a huge one in terms of how do we how do we build those? How do we seek that authentic feedback, Corey, is, you know what, if I've made a decision about something, then I shouldn't go ask people, hey, what do you think? Or should we do? If I've already decided that we're doing it, then we need to own that and, and we need to, you know. So I, I think if you do that, if you don't, if you ask for feedback when the decision's already made, yeah. uh, that completely erodes any possibility of authentic feedback in the future because people aren't going to give it to you. So that's that's the first one. The other piece that I'm thinking about, Randy, is that idea of making sure that when you're doing your data collection, that you're not collecting data to support what you think is going to happen, but be collecting it with an open mind. And I, I think that, um, you know, when, when we do that data collection, we gather feedback from staff. If we're only gathering feedback to support the direction that we want to go, that's equally uh, dangerous and, and damaging to the the response of that kind of real feedback. I still remember the we asked, you said surveys. And uh, <laughs> I felt like that was really empowering to staff because we said, <laughs> we asked you about this and here was your responses. Therefore, we are going to do this. And there were a couple of sticky situations or, or perhaps less popular options that that we uh, embarked upon, but we knew we had the backing of staff because we had asked them, and it really gave us the uh, moral authority. Moral authority, I, I guess, yeah, it was moral authority because they felt empowered. They felt like their voice was heard, and it wasn't always the people that yelled the loudest. It was the majority. So, no, I, I, I totally get that. And uh, and uh, just so you know, the uh, new leadership quality standard uh, certification process was not completely lost on me, Randy, because, yeah, they went through that whole 
uh, decision-making continuum uh, last weekend. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you to the Alberta government for putting me through that. <laughs> um, any final things you're thinking about? Any uh, last things that, that are coming to mind about, uh, about any topic, perhaps uh, maybe rapid-fire round? Go ahead, Dr. Hetherington. Just a quick one, because I know it's an area that the good folks down here in the United States are looking at you folks in Alberta and saying, these folks have got it right. I just would like to hear how things are going. And it was the, uh, the curriculum change that you've got going in your province right now, going to a concept-based curriculum. I've recently taught uh, the uh, curriculum implementation and curriculum planning course in the master's program for the Edmonton cohort uh, the last two rounds. And this is a big deal down here. The United States is watching what you're doing in Alberta. So how's that going? Bryn, do you want to start with that one? It, it's a bit of a loaded question, Randy. And, and here's, the, here's the thing is that um, – We've been working on this for quite a while. They've been getting feedback on it for for a heck of a long time, it seems. And so they're on the cusp of the pilot schools um, taking this on. We've been doing a lot of work within school divisions, especially in K-4, to and that work has ramped up just to get teachers an understanding of what concept-based teaching and what concept-based education looks like. Because this is a term that is foreign to a lot of people, but when they start interacting with it, it's not as foreign as that. So, you know, you tell the average Alberta teacher, um, hey, you're going to go teach concept-based, and they, uh, they're the the for many people the immediate response is fear because they don't know what that means but then when they start looking at it they go okay no this is um what we've been thinking about and i think also elementary so k to 4 teachers more than perhaps some older grades are more comfortable with this idea why i say it's loaded is that we're uh, about to go into a provincial election any time here and um there are certain political parties that are saying uh, very clearly that they do not want to go to a concept-based curriculum and that if elected, they will uh, not enact this curriculum. Um, so, Bryn, what, how's it going in your building? I think what you said is absolutely true, Corey, where it's, you know, there's that initial kind of fear reaction. And I mean, honestly, Randy, you, you bring that up and I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't really what I want to be talking about because I'm not necessarily 100% comfortable myself with what it looks like and what it feels like and and, and how do we best implement it. Um, but I think that, that the more I learn about it, the more I see it is the way that we've been doing business for a while. And I think that um, a lot of the things that we did that was good teaching is still good teaching and that still fits into, uh, into that new curriculum. And, and it's just, it's really about helping kids to see the, the interconnected interconnectedness of the learning and and to um kind of develop a really rich uh web where they start to see oh this is actually attached to this and and there's nothing is happening in isolation and so i mean Corey, going to your idea about uh you know you're going for a run right and how much of that learning how much of that stuff have you learned that's coming from a whole bunch of different places and and coming together around a certain set of criteria that you're using to judge how you move forward mm -hmm. right i think that's how real life works and so i think that when i the more i learn about 
the way that this curriculum could unfold if it actually does. Um, the more excited I am is I think it actually will have a really significant impact on helping kids to better understand their world coming out of things, out of, out of school, and, and maybe see some of those uh, connections between areas that we come to learn, but we come to learn through experimentation. And in some cases, uh, you know, when things don't go according to plan, right, you walk out the door in a windbreaker when it's minus 30 outside, right? And, yeah. and you realize, oh, maybe I won't do it that, that way again, right? Yeah, I would say the other aspect that I'm um, interested in and and perhaps even excited for is this idea that, you know, a certain amount of hours gives you a certain amount of proficiency. And um, this whole concept-based curriculum idea is that if you can show mastery of a concept, well, then go on to the next one. And let's create conditions where you can have classrooms, where you can have multiple levels of understanding on a particular subject so that kids are engaged. And I think that this relates right back to this whole idea of personalization and engagement. And it talks about uh, why the number one reason why I think uh, a lot of kids don't like the academic portion of school. And that's that either it's, it's too hard or it's too easy. And so it's getting a little bit more focused down into meeting the individual needs of students, setting up environments where all students can be successful and we meet them at their zone of proximal development where it's just hard enough. Or if you want to go into the flow state by, I'm going to butcher it, check Smaham's eye. And so that's the other part that I'm really excited for because it supports a lot of the work that we're currently doing in some of our uh, grade one and two classrooms where we've got a cross-graded literacy block where kids go to where they're going to be the most successful and where they um, where their needs are going to be met. Um, and they're still all working on the same basic principles and they still come all back for, for different curricular aspects, but they... Um, they they know it is just normalized that they all learn at different paces and, and they can go to the spot where they are going to learn best. What do you, yeah. Well, I'll just uh, be, uh, be watching for this topic because with the way Alberta has done on uh, the most recent PISA rankings, hmm. um, people know that something's going very, very right in Alberta, uh, at least, you know, by what those tests and those test results uh, can lead people to believe. So, so the eyes are watching, and I don't think uh, the rest of the world is aware that in Alberta you're having these kinds of debates, these types of uh, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back as you implement this. So people know that Alberta has a reputation as a, a leader in education worldwide, and so they're looking to see where you're going next. So... Uh, maybe we'll see on one of those fancy educational blogs that we've heard so much about. Maybe there'll be a, a, an expert on this concept-based curriculum as one of the guests one one day soon. Who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah, who knows? And perhaps uh, a topic to follow up on in a few months. Um, yeah, I think that this would be absolutely something that we should pick up on. Uh, do you want, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for for this conversation. Uh, not only it, do I do this because I get a lot from it, and uh, I think that you both have a lot to say, but uh, I think 
the people listening will also have um, been perhaps tweaked in their learning. And so thank you so much. And we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, intersectioned, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.